I'm going to be reading from the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 15, uh, verses 1 to 13. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. For every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is... He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you may bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Let's pray together. Father, just thank you for your presence uh, here this morning, Lord. We can't uh, reach out and, and touch you, but we are no less assured by your presence. In fact, your presence here this morning is, is just as real as our very own. So, Father, uh, we pray that we would feel Uh, in the deepest places of our hearts and our lives, uh, that you are here, that you are working, that you are present, and that you work through your word uh, to make us into the people you desire us to be. We pray all this uh, in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to share with you a term that I've heard other people say before, and it's something that uh, I've used uh, at time before, and it's called smorgasbord, uh, smorgasbord theology. Okay, and uh, what I mean by that, it's something that's become uh, really popular in our culture. Uh, but what I mean by that is, is, is just like what you remember at, in high school, if you can remember that far back. Remember in high school, you'd go to the cafeteria and you'd get your tray and you'd set it on the track and you'd walk uh, through the aisle and you'd pick certain things that you wanted to eat and you'd pass by the things that looked a little more suspect or that you wondered might not be the best thing for you uh, at that moment. Well, the reality is that many people do that very thing when it comes to the Bible. They like to pick and choose the things that they want to believe, and then the things that don't look very savory, they just want to pass by, or they don't embrace, or they choose not to believe it. And people do this particularly when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, They want to believe that Jesus was a a great teacher, he was a a wonderful moral example, but to believe in miracles or to believe that he was God's son or God in the flesh, well, that's just too much for them. They'd rather just pass by those parts of the Bible. 
C.S. Lewis talked a lot about this. He actually warned uh, about this very thing. And he said, we cannot really do that when it comes to the person of Jesus. Because he often said that no man who said the things that Jesus said can or should be embraced just as a teacher or just as a moral example. In fact, Jesus himself doesn't allow us to do that. So Lewis famously said there are really three inescapable conclusions that we can come to when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. Either he was a liar, either he was a lunatic, or he was who he said he was. He is Lord. Over the past several weeks, uh, we've been looking at uh, who Jesus is through his own words. We've been looking at at who he claimed to be. If you were with us several weeks ago, we looked at, at one claim that Jesus said. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And by saying that, he was telling his hearers that he was the pre-existent God and that, that he was superior to all others that had come before him. We've seen him say that, that he is the door. And what he meant by that is that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father except through a relationship with him. He said of himself that that he is the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. We saw last week that he called himself the bread of life, the the source of life that that will be broken on our behalf. We also saw him say that, that he is the resurrection and the life. And he did this in a context of, of a miracle of resurrection where he showed to everyone that he is the source of life and the only way to escape eternal death. And what I'd like to do this morning is, is look at one last claim of Jesus that we see in the Gospel of John. And we find it in this passage in John chapter 15, where he says, I am the vine. And what I'd like to do is look at at really kind of two verbs that are in this passage that helps us get at what Jesus is saying here. Look at the, the context in which Jesus said this and ultimately look at the byproduct that comes from embracing this teaching about Jesus. But the first thing I'd like to look at is is two of the the kind of verbs that are in this passage. And if we look at them, we get a sense of what Jesus is trying to say. And those verbs are pruning and abiding. The first verb is is pruning. Jesus uh, talks about himself as the true vine, and he talks about a, a pruning process that that means. Uh, I grew up in uh, an area in northern Baltimore County, uh, which is which is uh, land that's been very protected from development. It's just it was a beautiful place to to really grow up, but it was it was located right inside of a valley, and in that valley, over the past uh, fifteen twenty years, it's it's become very popular for for uh, vineyards to start up. And there were some vineyards when I was a kid, and, and now there's kind of vineyards all over the place. And if you drive through it, you look all over the hills, and uh, you'll see uh, vines and vineyards growing all over the place. And, and I remember as a kid uh, just running. I was a runner even as a kid, and I would run on the roads, and, and I'd look at these uh, vines that were, 
uh, meticulously cared for. They were, uh, they had stands and they were strung up and you could just tell that, that whoever worked that vineyard, uh, took great care to, to string up each one of these vines and to really care for it so that it would pr- produce the best grapes and make the best wine. And as I read the passage this week, and as I reflected on it, I couldn't help but, but think of those images that I saw growing up. Jesus had a practice of, of using everyday life images to explain uh, the nature of his kingdom, to explain who he was, and to explain uh, spiritual truth in his day. And uh, Jesus taught all these in the context of, of a Mediterranean climate, of the area of Jerusalem and the Palestinian region. And just because of the area and the climate and its proximity to the sea, it was known to be an area that was uh, particularly good for vineyards, particularly good for, for growing grapes. So I can only imagine as Jesus is, is teaching this story, he's probably teaching it with the backdrop of vineyards all around him. Or, or maybe he's even walking through these vineyards as he's teaching his disciples these things. And as he does it, he looks at his disciples and he says to them, I am the true vine and my father is the vine presser or the vine dresser. And in this context, he talks about pruning. And I think he, he's trying to get at really two things when he talks about pruning. The first thing he really goes after, I think, in this passage is, is what I like to call empty religiosity. And he talks about this in verse six. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, they're thrown into the fire, and they are burned. Now, when Jesus said this, uh, it meant something even more significant to those first century hearers than you and I always realize. There's something much deeper going on in this passage. Because if you read the Old Testament, you'll consistently see that the nation of Israel that God was in relationship with in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was consistently referred to as a vine or a branch all throughout the Old Testament. You see it in the book of Psalms, in the book of Isaiah, in Ezekiel, and Hosea, and Jeremiah. And it had become such a common image for the nation of Israel that it became their symbol. Uh, during one period of the nation, they actually put a branch on their, on their coins because it was such a, a symbol of their nation and of their national identity. And it became so important to them that if you walked into the Jewish temple of Jesus's day, you would notice right above the gate was a golden vine. It was a golden branch because that had become so significant to this nation. It was their symbol. It was their source of identity. And yet Jesus in this passage says something bold. He says, even though all those things are true, yet I am ready to cast out this branch. This had a powerful impact on those first century hearers because what Jesus is saying to his Jewish audience is that unless their faith is connected to him, the true vine, then really it is worth nothing. 
You see, the Jews believed that they were right before God because of their religiosity, because of their heritage. They believed that it was their Jewish blood or their nationalism that made them right before God. But then Jesus comes along and says to them, unless your religion is connected to me, then it is worthless. It has no value. It's a reminder to all of us, not just the Jewish nation in Jesus's day, but to all of us that it is never enough for us to simply be religious people. We can engage in in all the religious practices. We can follow all the morality. We can know all the right answers. We can be passionate about justice and caring for the poor. But unless those things are connected to Jesus, then ultimately those things are worthless. Because he is the true vine. He is the only source of life. So Jesus talks about this idea of pruning away empty religiosity, but he also talks about pruning in the context of growth as well. Look at verse one. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, I have to confess, I am no gardener. I gave it a real shot last year. I really tried with gardening last year. I gave it a real shot and I failed miserably. So I'm gonna keep trying, but I have to realize that I'm not very good at it whatsoever. In fact, this fall, we, we, decided, to, uh, we decided to grow broccoli. We thought, hey, let's, let's give broccoli a, 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 a go. Uh, so we bought all the plants and we put them in the ground. And the best yield we got from these broccoli plants is we got a little broccoli head about the size of a dime on each one of those plants. And we had a wonderful celebration day when we broke off those little heads. We brought them in and each kid got to pop one in his mouth, right? So I make no uh, no bones about that I'm not uh, particularly good at gardening. But it was much more common and people were much better about it in Jesus's day. In Jesus's day, there were vines everywhere. It was an agrarian culture. There were these vines that were everywhere and they would produce beautiful flowers that would spring up at certain times of the year. But the vine dressers, the, the people that worked on these vines, realized that if they were proactive about pruning away those flowers at just the right time, months later, it would yield a greater crop or it would yield a greater fruit to these vines. The grapes would be fuller. And Jesus uses that as an illustration to show us what a relationship with him is like. Because what Jesus is telling us is that a relationship with him necessarily involves a certain measure of spiritual pruning. You see, the scriptures tell us that when we enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are carried from death into life. Miraculous things happen in our hearts before we were characterized by the flesh and and now we are characterized by the spirit. The, The scriptures tell us that when we enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, we become a new creation. But what it is also honest about is that the vestiges of our old selves 
like to hang on. The, the sin patterns often stay with us. There is sin that, that still dwells within us even when we are in a relationship with Christ. So what God does is he says that he actively maintains the soil of our lives. He strips away things that aren't healthy or honoring to him. He cuts off the things that get in the way of our relationship with him. He desires a pure devotion from us, so he cuts away the things that often get in the way of our relationship with him. He tends and he prunes our lives and he tends and prunes our souls. And friends, we all know it isn't always painless. In fact, often his pruning makes us, makes us come face to face with very painful things in our lives as well. But God doesn't do this to be vindictive or, or punitive in any way. He does it because he loves us and he loves us perfectly. As a parent, I, am, I have a special calling. I'm, I'm called uh, to love my kids well, but also to help them grow in maturity and grow in their faith. And because of that, it is my job as a parent to sometimes confront things, to sometimes say things that are disruptive in even the lives of my kids. I don't do it just to be mean or vindictive or punitive, but I do it because I love them and I want them to grow into the people that God wants, us, wants them to be. God, God, our Father, treats us the same way. Tim Keller said, God sees us as we are, he loves us as we are, and he accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. You see, God is committed to us, and what that means is he doesn't shy away from our mess. He isn't repulsed by it, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't desire to speak into our mess. In fact, he wants to make us more and more like him, and that often involves a very spiritual pruning that happens at the most intimate places of our souls. The second verb I want to look at is this this term called abiding, which is really all through the passage. It's the word that's repeated the most throughout this passage. Verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, what Jesus is talking about here is not just abiding, but it's, it's a mutual abiding between two parties. Jesus is saying that he remains committed to us and he calls us to live out a deep commitment to him. Uh, one of my favorite authors is, is a man named Jack Miller, and uh, he wrote a lot of things about theology and about spirituality. And uh, one time he told uh, the story about uh, a friend of his who uh, survived having uh, battled and fought in World War II. And he writes this. He said, a friend of mine who fought in World War II 
told me that his most frightening day was when the general stood up in front of the troops in Italy and delivered a powerful speech about how they were going to smash through all the way to Rome. As he spoke, the the troops felt inspired. They felt that indeed this was possible. But then the general got into his staff car and drove the other way, away from the battlefront. My friend said that he had never felt so abandoned in his whole life. You see, friends, when when Jesus enters into a life, he breathes life into a soul that at one point was dead, and he makes a commitment to never leave. We never need to fear that things will become just too much in our lives for Jesus, and he will abandon us. No, he promises that he will remain. He will abide because he is committed to us to the very end. He abides with us. But it is a mutual abiding in the sense that he also calls us to abide with him. He isn't just committed to us, but he calls us to live out our commitment to him. He calls us to deeply nurture our relationship with him in all the ways that are possible, to to drink deeply from his word, to, to live lives committed to prayer, to commit ourselves to a body of believers, a bunch of messy sinners that gather together in a church just like ours. And he tells us that the proof of our relationship with him is the fruit of a life that comes from obeying him. In fact, Jesus even equates abiding in him to obeying him, to obeying his laws, to obeying his commands. But most importantly, he calls us to abide in him by living lives who are, that are defined by the message of the gospel to forsake trying to to make life work on our own terms, to stop trying to, to build our own righteousness, thinking somehow we can earn our favor back into God. Instead, he calls us to rest in his righteousness and in the goodness of Jesus Christ, to live out the gospel, to preach it to ourselves every day and to live out the gospel each day. This is what it means to abide in him. But lest this feel really kind of mechanical and formulaic, Jesus then reminds us what the context of this abiding is really all about. He shows us what the the context of this mutual abiding looks like, and it is the context of love. Look at verse 9. He says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. I have to tell you, as I I worked on this passage all week and, and reflected on it, this was the verse that blew me away more than any other verse in this passage. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. This is hard for us to conceive of, and here's why. All the love that you and I experience on this earth is imperfect. 
Selfishness tends to creep in. Uh, Sin tends to turn us inward so that even the best experiences of love that you and I experience on this earth are still imperfect and flawed. But think about what Jesus is saying here. He's telling us that there is a perfect love that exists between God the Father and God the Son in all the power of the Trinity that complements one another and shrouded in mystery. There's this perfect love within the Godhead. There's this perfect harmony and a white-hot intensity of that love. And what Jesus is saying is that he loves us with the same amount of intensity that God the Father loves him. This love is so much different and so much greater than any love that you and I have ever experienced. It is divine, it is perfect, and it is intense. And it is the degree to which God cherishes and loves his people. But lest it be just about words... Jesus wasn't just content to say that he loves us. He wanted to show us as well. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The ultimate demonstration of God's love for you and I is his willingness to die for us on the cross to secure a relationship with us. So what we see is is the context of all this pruning and all this abiding really ultimately is the deep, deep love that Christ has for his people. Finally, or the last thing that we see here is what is the byproduct of all of this stuff? What is the byproduct of this relationship? Well, he tells us in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. All this love, all this obedience, all this pruning, all this abiding, all has the end result in joy. Complete joy. Joy that is overflowing. Joy that is full. Joy that is spilling over the edges of the cup. It is fullness of joy. Friends, this is what it means to to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our, Our joy and our fruitfulness doesn't come from our own achievement because we can't conjure it up on our own. It ultimately comes as we celebrate and we abide in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, For a long time, uh, my wife and I have uh, uh, followed one of our our favorite musical groups. One of our favorite musical groups is uh, uh, a husband and wife uh, musician team uh, that is out of Ohio. And uh, we've had the privilege of uh, buying most of their albums and seeing them uh, in, co- in concert a couple of times. And uh, they have beautiful music that we've all really loved. Music that, that really captures, uh, the, the lyrics really capture a lot of the human experience. Uh, but what we, what we learned one time was that it all almost ended. Because the husband and wife at one point realized that uh, all the joy and all the inspiration in their music was leaving them. It was gone. 
And the reason they discovered that was happening is because their marriage was falling apart. They couldn't get along anymore. They were fighting all the time when they were on the road touring and they seriously considered uh, having a divorce and just ending everything. I should have been sad about the marriage, but I was sad about the loss of the music in the process. But one of the good news is, is that they decided instead of divorcing that they were gonna fight for their marriage. And here's what they did. They said every, they canceled their tour and we, got, we missed a concert because of it. They canceled their tour. They moved back home and they canceled all their commitments and they said, we're just gonna fight for one another. So what they did is every single night they sat down at the dinner table they brought out a bottle of wine and they said, we're going to drink this bottle of wine till it's over and we're just going to talk. That's all we're going to do. And we're just going to talk until this bottle of wine is over. And they did this every single night. Some nights they laughed together. Some nights they got a little drunk together. Some nights they uh, screamed at one another. Sometimes they had meaningful conversation with one another. But in the end, they rediscovered their joy in one another and they rediscovered their love for one another. And as a result, their music that they made together became so much more beautiful and joyful. Friends, the only way for us to feel full and complete joy in this life is by abiding in the amazing love that God has for us. It's living a life of obedience and fruitfulness. It is loving God despite the fact that at times he has to prune us and speak into our hearts. But ultimately, it is sitting in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ and marveling at his deep, deep, white-hot, intense love for us. Let's pray together.